Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this episode, I talk to Nikita Kandwala. Nikita is a leader in future-proofing workforces and utilizing generative AI to power teams, exploring the human potential in careers and designing those careers to succeed with initiatives like the Future Proof Fellowship, 100 Days of AI, and her own consulting. Her mission is to maximize meaning for as many people and communities as possible around the globe. Let's hear what she has to say. So thanks so much for taking the time to join us today, uh, Nikita. Um, could you introduce yourself to the Label Sessions audience for us, please? Of course, and thanks so much for having me, Josh. Um, so I'm Nikita. Uh, lovely to be here. I am a creator, consultant, and what I like to call future-proofer. And that basically means that I spend the majority of my time working with a combination of individuals, organizations, and universities to help them think about how they can future-proof themselves and their customers or students for what is a radically changing world of work. And um, this has obviously only become even more prevalent in recent months and years since obviously generative AI has taken the world, um, not just the tech world, but the entire world by storm. And so people are thinking a lot more intentionally about what does it look like to have a job or have a team or organization in a world that is fueled by AI. So that's a lot of the work that I'm doing. Amazing. So um, from that, I wanted to take it back to sort of a starting point. So tell us about the um, starting point and inspiration behind your mission to help individuals and um, organizations future-proof their lives and careers. What, what gave you the confidence to sort of take your first step into this field? So I've been in education and primarily the intersection between education and the future of work since I started my career. And actually before that, since I was at university. Um, and the inspiration for me is a combination of very personal in terms of the way that I was kind of brought up in an environment where education was sort of the holy grail um, and very much a gateway to social mobility. Um, and that was sort of the initial inspiration. But as I started working in the industry and realizing like how much work we still had to do um, to really um, reduce barriers to entry for people to one, gain social mobility and to really match the right talent to the right opportunities at the right time. I'd by this point worked with everyone from sort of big corporates at LinkedIn to smaller startups and scale-ups as well as universities. And I just had this overwhelming sense that we were kind of facing this collective crisis of meaning. And that sounds pretty dramatic, but I think it is quite dramatic and rightfully so. What I mean when I say that is more than ever you're seeing particularly young people, so people in the sort of 16 to 24 year old demographic, but also older generations as well, feel like they aren't really deriving any purpose or meaning from their work. And I think this is incredibly sad because we spend about 80,000 hours of our lives at least working, right? And again, I think with the advent of like AI, this has the potential to really exacerbate that meaning crisis because it's no secret anymore that AI is going to displace some jobs. And it is, if it doesn't displace some jobs, going to radically shift the shape of a lot of jobs. And so... My mission, I guess, is twofold. One, it's sort of on the micro-individual level of how can we really support individuals to regain meaning and agency in their careers? And secondly, more on the systems level, the macro level of 
how can we get rid of things like bullshit jobs, um, which is this term that pretty much is what it says on the tin. Um, how can we uh, kind of reorient market mechanisms so that the right people are mobilized around the right problems at the right time? Um, so those are the main two areas of my mission. Yeah. Awesome. And and so uh, going from that, you also talk to um, big companies about how they can utilize AI tools and what it means to build um, AI-powered teams. So what advice would you have to people who are uh, to leaders who are thinking about using AI tools for the first time within their organization? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question and one that I wish people asked more. Um, the short answer to begin with is that there's this idea in chess um, of a centaur. Um, and it's an idea that um, has its origins in the tech and kind of machine learning world. And it basically refers to this idea that a, if you combine human intuition with the computational speed and power of a machine or a computer, you get something that either a human or a machine cannot compete with in isolation. So if you think of some of the great chess grandmasters, for example, it's usually centaur teams of chess players who win out over just human players or just AI players. And that's a fact that not many people know. So to leaders who are thinking, oh my gosh, what do I do about AI? Do I need to replace my human team with a team of AI agents? Or how can I upskill my team with AI skills? I would say, think of yourself as becoming a centaur team. By which I mean, if you can upskill your team to use AI and leverage AI in ways that actually amplify their innate human capabilities, their curiosity, their creativity, their relationship management skills, that's going to get you so much further than if you have a bit of a freak out and just think, okay, I need to replace all of my, or I need to lay off all my human team members or whatever. So really thinking about AI as a tool, nothing more than that to amplify your existing team, I think is how I would start to um, ignite that culture shift. That's great. I love that analogy of the of the centaur. So it's a really, really wonderful bit that um, I'm still reeling over the idea that we're um, at our jobs for about 80,000 hours in our lifetime at minimum. I've never thought about it in statistic like that. It's always just, it's sort of buried down on me. But we just were talking about before about being a wedding's day. So it's just sort of like, but. <laughs> it's a lot. Taking <laughs> Many existential crisis in the villas. But um, you, uh, you were talking about crisis as well, speaking of. Um, so what, what pitfalls of, uh, uh, leading on from that, what pitfalls can they avoid using these sort of tools for the first time? There's a few things here that I would like to pick up, both in terms of the pitfalls, but also the areas of opportunity. I think if you're a business leader or an exec who's like, okay, I do want to build an AI-powered or a centaur team, what's the first step? The most important thing to do is think in systems and frameworks. What I see as one of the most common mistakes business leaders make is, okay, I will um, try this random tool and then I'll sprinkle a little bit of ChatGPT on top and then maybe I'll use some mid-journey and oh, my colleague just sent me this really cool thing and my kid's using this one. And it's just like, it makes your brain explode. Um, now, while I understand that, there are literally hundreds of thousands of AI tools coming out every single week. It is quite overwhelming. What's really important to not overwhelm your team as well is to ensure that you have a process and a system in place to make sure that you are compliant with any legal regulations that you have, as well as that your client's data is safe, your team's data is safe, and things like this. 
it will also make your team feel way better if they don't feel like AI in that organization is totally out of control, but there's a clear protocol or at least um, a way to experiment within the bounds of whatever has been laid out by the leader. And so I think what's really important is to have a document where you basically have an AI policy, which is, you know, these are the things we're excited about experimenting with. These are the metrics we're trying to um, move with AI, with the help of AI. Um, these are the tools that we're most excited about using, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then create safe spaces for your team to talk about what they're worried about, what have they found and experimented with that maybe business leaders don't even know about. What are they scared of? What are they concerned about? And I think those two things in combination, kind of having a high level policy, but also creating conversational spaces where everyone in the team can contribute ideas. That's often what I've seen led to really great outcomes for companies. And I would also say that one other pitfall that business leaders make is thinking that they don't need to upskill their team. And if they're aware of the changes in AI and developments, then that's enough. Um, I can't remember who did this study, but there's a stat that 20% of business leaders at this point in time have now played around with AI tools, including ChatGPT, but only 80% of frontline, um, sorry, I got that mixed up. 80% of business leaders have used these tools, but only 20% of frontline employees have. Now that's a massive disconnect in terms of skill levels and being up to date with recent trends. And so what I often tell people that I'm working with is you really need to you know, lift the ladder down and kind of give people a hand up so that they can reach that point too of, okay, I'm not scared of AI. This is where I start. This is the first step I can take. So those are some of the main recommendations I'd have and the pitfalls that you can avoid as a leader. Uh, that, that's another great statistic. So leading on from that, what's in that 20%, what are the type of companies that you're excited to, um, to work with and what sort of conversations are you excited to have? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're starting to see in the media and social media now is some really great case studies of companies that are utilizing um, AI really well. So IKEA is a big one that's been in the news, right? I don't know if you've seen it, but basically IKEA, instead of laying off a huge department of employees, they decided to retrain, I think it was customer service um, people in their company as interior design um, advisors. And that was just brilliant. And the reason behind it was because they had trained a, an AI bot to answer a lot, like the vast majority really well of customer service inquiries. And so they were like, gosh, we have these 8,000 customer service reps. What do we do with them? And I think it says so much about a company's culture. If at a decision-making point like that, they can either choose let's lay off 8,000 people or they can choose to reskill them internally and internally mobilize them towards new jobs. And the companies that think like that are the ones I'm really excited to work with. So um, anyone who's just really serious about deploying AI in their business to get better results faster and create more impact, I always love speaking to um, because they're really optimistic about potential. I also love working with and I'm excited to work with people who are, to put it lightly, a bit afraid of what the impacts of AI could mean to their company. Because I think when you start to actually have these conversations and show business leaders and employees what the positive implications of AI can be, there's there's something I call an eyes light up moment where you just see someone's eyes light up and they're like, oh my gosh, I never thought you could do that. Or I never thought that was a possibility. Or that thing I was worried about, actually, I don't need to be concerned. 
And so the companies that have a lot of people like that who maybe aren't sorry for in yet, I'm also really excited. Amazing. What um, do you talk about the positive and negative implications? Obviously, the the big negative implication of AI is what you said, which is like, oh, we're going to get replaced. What are some of the other negative implications that you've heard that are keeping some sort of some organizations afraid of AI? Before I answer that, there's one in distinction that's so important for us to make, I think, in any conversation about AI, which is the distinction between generative AI and artificial general intelligence or AGI. It doesn't help that they sound exactly the same. Um, but the reason I make that distinction is because when you have more existential or philosophical discussions with people about AI, they're often talking about AGI, which, to be clear, is not something that we have yet, at least not in the public domain. Um, generative AI, on the other hand, is something that is the thing that's taken the world by storm in the form of primary chat GPT and other large language models. And people have fears about both of those domains of AI, don't get me wrong, but I am definitely not an expert in AGI and don't claim to be. Um, but when it comes to generative AI, I can definitely answer your question about some of the key concerns people have. Apart from the job displacement thing, I think one other very practical worry a lot of businesses have is around privacy, security, protection. Um, where is their data going if they do pump it into a large language model? Um, does that put their customers or their team or any other stakeholder that they work with at risk is a big one I hear. Apart from security and privacy, like where does the difference between our skill level as a general labor market and AI technology, like how big is that disconnect? So what I'm seeing right now is a lot of people asking this question of, oh, will I be displaced by AI? Will my job go, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas I think the more important question to be asking is if we don't take um, the strides and the steps to upskill our young people and our career switches and our labor force, then what's going to happen, and this has happened historically in the Industrial Revolution and many other examples, is that the technology in terms of its power continues to increase almost exponentially, right? But our skills don't match it. And that, because you don't then have people who can use the technology, the technology appears to be less productive or fuel productivity and results way less than it actually can in reality. And that's a big problem, not just from a skills perspective, but also from a technological advancement perspective. So I think that's a, um, a big worry that people in the future of workspace have, um, in particular, yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. Talking a little bit more about generative AI, because obviously that's your specialty, is um, a big part of the mission that you have is career design and how it lives alongside generative AI, as you've talked. Um, what are some of the practical tips and uh, strategies that people could have in shaping their own careers today? Yeah, so I have a whole um, course around this. But to give sort of a high-level overview, my aim is basically to help people regain agency over their careers. Um, and the analogy that I often use is one borrowed from Reid Hoffman's book, The Startup of You, um, which says that essentially we are basically the CEOs of our own career. 
And what we're taught in school and at university and whatever is the exact opposite of that. It's almost like our career is something that happens to us as opposed to something that we can intentionally craft. And so all the kind of strategies and toolkits and frameworks that I share with people are around this idea that actually you have way more agency than you think you do. And now I'll give you just one example. Um, that's this idea of a third door, which is basically that if you're applying for a job or you really have this like role model who you want to collaborate with or work with, there are three ways to get that opportunity. There's door number one, which is the door that everyone sees and everyone's queuing up at, right? There's door number two, which is the way you get in through nepotism, basically. If you know someone or you know someone of someone, they can let you in through a bit of a side door. But then there's the third door, which no one ever really sees, which is maybe like a door underneath the basement or some like window at the top of the building that no one ever sees. But if you can find, it's often the most powerful way to get in. And the reason that it's hidden is because for so few people realize it's there and then use it. So to give like a concrete example of this, um, if I'm applying for a job um, to be a podcast producer, let's say, um, and the person that I want to produce the podcast for is a really big creator. Um, they get loads of DMs and emails every day and they probably don't have the time of day for me. Either I can apply for a job with them by filling out the application for a podcast producer that's on their website, or I can fill out the application, send it to them along with um, an episode that I have cut up from some episodes that they've already done or some YouTube content that they've already created. I can edit that together, make it into a fully produced um, touched up podcast and send that to them and say, hey, this is what I can do for you. I've already done this. Um, what do you think? Not only have I shown a huge amounts of initiative in doing that, but there's almost no way that they can say no to me. Um, obviously there is, but the chances of them saying no are way smaller if you just submit a CV or a cover letter as people usually do, right? Because it's less than 1% of people usually who demonstrate that initiative to identify a problem and actually create something of value that the end uh, hiring manager or employer can actually use. So that's one key framework that I really love that I think more people should use. Perfect example of a show, don't tell. Exactly. Exactly. Nice. Austin Cleon. I love him. <laughs> no, I, I know you already mentioned it uh, already. Um, you talked about bullshit jobs in uh, your, your introduction. But I was wanting to delve a little bit more into that. What are the, firstly, what does this mean within your field? And secondly, how how can you sort of, um, when, you, when you're carving your career path, how can you avoid falling into what you'd coin as a, as a bullshit job? Yeah, so... Great question. Um, bit of background is that um, there was an anthropologist called David Graeber, who unfortunately died a couple of years ago, who wrote um, a pretty seminal essay back in 2013 called Bullshit Jobs. And um, he then expanded it into a book about five years later. And um, the key definition that he uses of a bullshit job is one that I think a lot of people don't, um, it's not a mental model that people have, he says that a bullshit job is any job where the person doing the job feels like their job is devoid of purpose and meaning, but they have to pretend that there's a reason for it to exist because that's how they make a living, right? And now that's a very subjective definition. So we can both be corporate lawyers, I'd say. And I think I have a bullshit job because I don't think I'm helping anyone. I'm not contributing to any social cause, but you actually really love your job. You feel like you are helping people and therefore you don't think you have a bullshit job. 
So what I want to emphasize there is that this idea of having a bullshit job is very dependent on who you are and what your mission and kind of vision in life is. Which leads me to the second part of your question, which is like, how can people avoid falling into the bullshit job trap? Um, again, I come back to what I said before of you have way more agency than you think you have, so use it. And what I mean by use it is there's a difference between a mission in your career, which is what a lot of people talk about, right? Find your purpose, do your ikigai, like you'll, you'll identify your mission. And sure, like that's important, but I would love you to tell me how many people you've met in your life who have like a clearly defined mission for that career. Like, it's pretty and um, what most people have on the other hand is ways that they derive meaning in their career or not in their career, in their kind of personal lives, right? So that might be, I derive meaning from building communities and building new relationships with people, or you derive meaning from um, creating new forms of media that hold a lot of meaning for other people and sharing that. Um, and there are so many different examples of where people can derive meaning and so what I'd encourage people to do is and I have an exercise on this, which is figure out where the specific points are in your career and your life where you do derive significant meaning and then double down on those. Because the more points of meaning you have, the less you're going to feel like your job is bullshit. And the more you can craft it into a job that actually does have some kind of impact and meaning and, and value to you and to the people around you. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I, I love the whole concept of uh, bullshit jobs. It's something I've only just recently stumbled upon. Um, and it's just, I just love how it's just so matter of fact, straight to the point. It's just, it's bullshit, you know, it's in the title. So um, no, that's great. That's great. Um, so turning from there into the future, what, from your exploration of um, the future of work, what trends do you believe will be, or will have the most in profound impact on businesses and careers within say the next decade? One of the key trends I anticipate because it's already happening is, but I think, I think the curve is going to get a lot steeper in the coming years is um, what I call the atomization of careers. So you might have come across this idea of a squiggly career or a portfolio career, which is basically this idea that career paths are not linear. They're like all over the place. Like my career path so far has been like, what? <laughs> and I mean, and because of that, because the younger generation are making career decisions that are more short-term in nature, um, and they are do, doing more gigs or jobs in parallel with each other as opposed to consecutively, that means that organizations are going to need to shift how they hire. So one thing I anticipate will happen, which I haven't seen yet, is that companies won't necessarily be hiring on the basis of jobs in the near future. They will be hiring on the basis of skills and more than that projects um and i think project-based hiring is something that like isn't really a commonly used term yet but i hope to see it become one because i'm a big believer in interdisciplinary thinking and interdisciplinary learning and i think we're seeing a massive increase in the number of generalists that are coming into the workforce because you kind of have to be a bit of a generalist to survive in today's labor market because skills are just changing so, so quickly and you need to keep up and constantly be reskilling. And so I think the increase in the number of generalists that we'll see, as well as companies starting to catch on to this trend, oh, oh, we need to hire in a different way. We need to have more opportunities for people to move horizontally as well as vertically um, is a really key trend. And similarly to that, um, I think we're going to see a lot more businesses want um, 
with AI and the immense amount of time and money and effort you can save with AI-assisted sales agents or marketing expert, experts or um, video producers or editors or whatever, we are going to see businesses that are way smaller, maybe one, two, three founders plus a ton of AI actually reach similar outcomes to a 30-person or 50-person like unicorn in today's world. And I think that, again, the market is going to have to reorient itself around that. Um, but again, I think that speaks volumes to how much agency that individuals can have over their own path, um, as opposed to how much agency we had before or we felt we had. Going from there, who are some of the thought leaders or people that you would look out for and follow in generative AI? It's not necessarily that what I think they have to say is incredibly um is incredibly kind of prominent but it's more that keeping up to date with what the biggest ai companies are doing is really important if you want to be at the forefront of it so following people like mira marati who's the cto at open ai as well as sarah altman ceo etc and um, following demis Hassabes, who's um the founder ceo of DeepMind. those companies and their leaders are some of the people who've been thinking um about this stuff for way longer than we can even imagine so if you really want to deep dive into kind of how this stuff works um, and where these massive companies are going with it, those are the people I'd um, encourage you to follow. But other than that, I think there are some really great kind of thought leaders, um, people, again, who've been in AI for a number of years, who've been creating content about AI for ages that we need to pay more attention to. So um, one of my favorites is Ali K. Miller, who's quite big on LinkedIn, and I think YouTube as well. Um, but she does a brilliant job of really making AI concepts accessible and also giving you very practical ways to um, to use AI in your day-to-day. -day. Amazing. Um, so just to wrap it up before we get into the quickfire questions, what's on the horizon for you? Uh, what's keeping you busy? This year? I know you mentioned your course, Wink, Wink, Nudge, Nudge. <laughs> so yeah, what's, what's keeping you busy this year? Yeah, I mean, um, it is primarily around the intersection between future-proofing and AI. So I am launching a course in a couple of months for career switchers um, that is aimed at helping them become the CEO of their careers and just regain that agency so they have better um, kind of employment outcomes. I'm also running a version of that course with a bunch of different universities around the UK, as well as building an AI course and um, yeah, consulting many startups and scale-ups on how they can really integrate AI into their workflows and just save time and money. That's great. Well, um, yeah, straight on the quickfires then. Where do you go to feed your brain creatively? Brilliant question. Um, I have to say newsletters and like substat newsletters and poetry, which is a weird combination. <laughs> yeah, those two would be, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, and what do you think is um, overhyped right now? And if there's anything else that you think was is interesting that isn't being picked up by the mainstream? I do think AI is overhyped, which might seem a bit of a surprise okay. given that I'm kind of working in that space. But I think there are different ways of talking about AI. And I think some people are taking advantage of it in a bit of a techie way that makes it inaccessible to others, which I don't like. Um, and yeah, interesting things that are happening so much like in physics, in long-termism, in um, a lot of the stuff that we've kind of touched on. And um, there's so much that we should be talking about that we aren't, which is what I'm trying to bring a voice to. Yeah, that's great. Um, what is your go-to website when you procrastinate? If you do procrastinate, that is. 
Um, who doesn't procrastinate? <laughs> I have to say Twitter, unfortunately. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. There you go. I don't know if there's much poetry on Twitter nowadays, though. Depends who you follow. <laughs> um, that's great. What What is it about your sort of field of work that you love the most? What's like the number one thing? Pretty much everyone in education and the future of work is very positive sum. Um, very few people are playing zero sum games in this industry, and I love that because I think we're living in like a time of hyper individualism, and I love community and I love collaboration. So that's big for me. Well, um, this one is a little can be a little bit tricky for some people because some people already have it planned out in their heads, and some people just sort of have no idea. But um, so, so no worries. But um, what title would you give your own autobiography? Oh my gosh, I love that you. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. Oh my gosh, that's really hard. I have no idea. <laughs> what title would I give my own autobiography? I can't think of a name. I can just think of a shape, which is like a squiggle that goes like this. <laughs> the whole um, just like squiggly career thing that I mentioned earlier. Like, I think we've had so many narratives that like many things in life are linear, like relationships and your career and whatever and I think so far I've found absolutely nothing to be linear at all so maybe it wouldn't have a name maybe it would just be a shape wow like the artist formerly known as Prince <laughs> no, that's, that's great we've never had somebody say shape before so that, that's probably that's probably one of the best answers we've had yet because like I say there's some people who just have it like off the top of the head and I was like like you say I, I love it but who, who knows <laughs> But um, so this is our last one, and this is something we ask everyone. Um, on a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? With ten being the yes. highest, seventeen. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you should ask that because I was doing a workshop earlier today, and my one of my intro questions that I use a lot is, "How are you feeling on a scale of one to 17? Because I just think that scales up to ten are weird. So maybe that answers your question. There you go. <laughs> there you go. You heard it here first, folks. The scale itself is weird. <laughs> No, that's fantastic. Well, um, yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day, Nikita. That's that's all we have for for now. But um, yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much. No, thanks so much, Josh. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.